Well, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Great job, you two. Thank you so much. We could title this chapter, Whenever God Puts Pride Out to Pasture, couldn't we? But let me start it this way. What would you think if Joe Biden wrote an open letter to the world, and in that letter he proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the one and only true God? He confessed that he'd been proud and arrogant during his entire political career. He repented of living in opposition to God. And then in that letter, he told the story of how God brought him to to that place and how he'd humbled him. And in the end, he praised God, the God of heaven, for his truth and justice and mercy. Well, first, you'd wonder whether it was a forgery (laughs) or if it was sincere But once you got by that, you'd probably marvel at how God's grace can reach any person. Well, that's very similar to what we have in Daniel chapter 4, but but not from an American president. It's an open letter from the most powerful pagan king in all the world in the time that it was written. I mean, in modern times, I know he's dead, but in modern times it would be more like that. That letter was written by Chairman Mao. Chapter 4 of the book of Daniel is King Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. In it, he tells us how he was brought to realize that the Lord was the one true and living God. And what's almost as significant is, is that it's not written on some scratch piece of paper that was hidden under the corner of his bed that somebody found after he, he died This letter would have been read in every city and every corner of his kingdom. And we even have it inscripturated in the book of Daniel. It would have been read by military commanders and the wise men that have been out to get him, that he's he's been trying to protect his throne from, and and farmers and slaves and and everyone in between. One man said something had happened to Nebuchadnezzar so amazing that he had to tell everybody about it, even if it made him look bad or like a fool. And where Daniel chapter 3 begins and ends with a proclamation about Daniel's God, chapter 4 begins and ends with a personal testimony about the God that Nebuchadnezzar is now praising. And this testimony is pretty easy to to follow. It, It has five parts. There's an introduction in verses 1 through 3, which gives us the purpose of why Nebuchadnezzar is doing this. Then three reports, his his dream in verses 4 through 18, its interpretation in 19 through 27, the fulfillment of the dream in verses 28 through 33, and finally a conclusion, verses 34 through 37. The theme verse of this chapter is repeated many times. It's found in its fullest form, though, in verse 17. Look, if you would, at Daniel 4, 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones. And here is the the theme. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's the theme of the chapter. That same phrase is repeated in verse 25 and 32, and in a different form in verse 26 and verse 34 and verse 35. Six times that is repeated, that concept is repeated in in this chapter. Look if you would at verse 25. Here's the the second occurrence of it. Here's in the the, the judgment. That you... uh, be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you. Here it is. Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in verse 32... The end, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Verse 26 says it this way, after you recognize that heaven rules. Are you picking up a theme here? You should. The repeated truth in chapter 4 is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. 
And that, that's the lesson of the chapter. And this pagan king puts that in bold print. If you want to summarize Daniel chapters 1 through 4, you could do it with four words. Daniel 1, God repositions. Daniel 2, God reveals. Daniel 3, God rescues. And Daniel 4, God rules. And this lesson about God ruling comes to us through a very familiar principle found throughout the entire Bible. Look at the final words of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in verse 37. Here's the conclusion of his personal testimony. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true, and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And there's the principle. God gives grace to the humble, and he opposes the proud. Now the Bible informs us that we are already enemies of God because of our sin. But if you want to pick a fight with the deity, then express pride in any form. James 4, 6 says it this way, God opposes the proud. And the word that James uses there for, for oppose means to, to line up in battle armor against someone. Pride draws God's direct opposition. He lines up on the other side in chain mail against you. To say it plainly, God hates Pride. Proverbs chapter 6 declares that very specifically to us. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, there it is, pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The first and most pervasive sin in all the universe is pride. It was Satan's first sin. It was Adam's original transgression. It's the mother of all iniquities, and it will make you stupid. It really will. As you read chapter 4, you read ahead. Did, did you ever have this thought? You're in chapter 4 of Daniel. You've been reading, tracking along with all the different things that have been happening to Nebuchadnezzar. Did you ever think this thought, how can a clearly intelligent man, the ruler of the entire uh, kingdoms of, 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 of Babylon, experience so much evidence of God in the previous chapters and still ignore him? An amazing dream in chapter 2 where it was interpreted for him, the miraculous deliverance of chapter 3. I mean, he even looked into the fire and saw a fourth person that was like the, the, the Son of God. And he's still here in chapter 4 living as if God doesn't exist. How is that possible? Well, the answer is he had the same defect that you and I have that comes from the fall. It's a heart of human pride. How do we have something bad come and get angry with God or have something good come and not even think about thanking Him for it? As one said, as professing Christians, we often live like practical atheists. And pride will lead you to think your accomplishments are yours alone, that, that whatever you have came from your hand, or it, it, will, it will delude you to think that God's arm is too short to bring you off of your elevated perch. That's the error that God will correct in Daniel chapter 4. And, and while that's a familiar theme that God opposes the proud, this is a, quite a unique chapter in, in the Bible. It's the only chapter in Scripture composed by a pagan monarch. At least that's how he starts when he begins the story. It's also unique to Daniel. This is the only chapter that, that's not from Daniel or his three friends' point of view, but Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. It's his testimony. It's even declared that in verse 1. It starts in the first person. I, Nebuchadnezzar, and it goes through the first 27 verses like that. Then it reverts to, to third person whenever you, it, it should, when, when he goes out of his mind. He, he can't give a first person account whenever he was like a cow. And then it comes back to the first person at the end when he's brought back to his senses in verses 34 through 37. When you put it all together, I think you can call it a humbling lesson that teaches heaven rules over earth's realm. He said there are five parts to it. There's the proud king's proclamation, the startled king's dream, the merciful dream's interpretation, 
the resisted dream's fulfillment and the humble king's praise. You'll get those as we, as we walk along. Here's the proud king's proclamation. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar the king, and uh, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It, it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Nebuchadnezzar starts by announcing the, the, the purpose of his letter. It's twofold. The first is given in, in verse 2. It seemed good for me to declare the wonders of God. He, he wants to tell everyone how great God is. And the second is found in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Here's what he says. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. The, the second purpose, he, he wants to declare who had the real power in his empire. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar. He wants everyone to know who was really in control. And here is one of Daniel's two goals that I've been reminding you of in, in each book. The book of Daniel was written to show you and I how to live as pilgrims and strangers in a world that's not our home. And that's what we had in chapter 3, whenever God rescues. And now in chapter 4, the second goal of Daniel is to teach you that there is a God whose kingdom is coming... And even before it comes, he controls the kingdoms of the earth. And that's the point of chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar starts by giving a summary of the revelation that God had given to him. I mean, if you would just stand back and, and didn't know that this says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, remove his name, and you just read Daniel 4, 1 through 3, I mean, you would presume that it was written by the by, by psalmist. Definitely not a pagan king. He, he says he, it even seemed fine or beautiful uh, in order to do this. Leon Wood said the phrase means it was beautiful before me. This idea was, 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 was a beautiful thing for me to, to write this. This is not a coerced or reluctant testimony. He's trying to appease Daniel's God. I mean, this is genuine. The king delighted to share these things about the God of heaven. And as I thought about that, I thought it might be a good place to ask you how willing you are to share the things that God has revealed to you. I hope the name of Jesus Christ doesn't need to be coerced from your lips. I hope His name freely comes and that you have not forgotten all of His benefits toward you, as the psalmist does write. But notice what Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has learned and what he wants to declare openly. Look at verse 3 again. Here's what he wants to declare. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. He says that he's learned three things from God that he wants to declare to everybody. He says that God reveals himself, in this case, in his case, through mighty wonders. He says that God's kingdom is everlasting, meaning that it's the one that lasts, not, not Nebuchadnezzar's or Joe Biden's or anybody else's. And that God reigns over all. He has dominion and it never ends, he says. It's from generation to generation. Now that's pretty amazing theology from a pagan king. And yet after this introductory or this preamble to, 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 to his faith, Nebuchadnezzar then tells us how he, how he came to learn these things. Look if you would at the, the second, the startled king's dream. Look if you would at verse 4. Ah, Nebuchadnezzar, no, it's first person was at ease in my house and was and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. So Nebuchadnezzar describes himself. He's, he's at ease or flourishing. He's contented or prosperous. He's at peace. There's peace and prosperity in the kingdom or fat, dumb, and happy, as they say. And we don't know exactly when these events happened, but, but Nebuchadnezzar, it's likely toward the end of his reign. And there's a couple of things that... that little details that, that show you that in, in this chapter. Verse 30, when he goes out on his porch and looks at his kingdom, he, he, it seems to be evident that his building programs are ended. The king says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? You don't pat your, your side over your, your buildings unless you're coming to the end of your reign. And, 
And then here in verse four, it says that there's peace in, in the kingdom and kings uh, of the, the ancient world conquered and then they build. They, they go out and conquer and gather as much territory as they can and they fill it with monuments and buildings to, them, to themselves. And both of those things are, are complete. So this seems to indicate that, that this is toward the end of his reign. And there's even some outside sources that talk about Nebuchadnezzar's illness that point to the end of his reign. And Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. So if you calculate time for his illness, whether it's seven years or, or whatever it is and, and a year prior to that, then this is about five years after he, he takes, finally takes over Judah in 586 B.C., meaning about 30 years since he had the original dream. He is a second one. So Daniel is about my age. He's about 50 years old whenever he enters this, this scene. But Nebuchadnezzar himself says his peace is short-lived because he's arrested by another dream. Look at verse 5. He says, I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind, kept alarming me. It doesn't end. It, it goes on. and He can't get it out of his head. And, and so looking for some rest, he, he calls the, the, the wise men in again, and they prove just as worthless in the end as they were in the beginning. You would at verse 6. It says, So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Not only has he forgotten about uh, Daniel's God in the, in the beginning of this chapter, but he's also forgotten that his counselors are not that good. Nebuchadnezzar has outlasted, though, the, this Chaldean coup that was there. You could tell that by the fact, did you notice he tells them the dream? He, he doesn't play any games with them this time? He just wants an interpretation. And it may be because he really doesn't care about the truth of the interpretation. He, he can tell this dream's not favorable to him. So he wants somebody to tell him it's, it, it's all okay. And here's their answer in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and, related, uh, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Thirty years later, and they still possess no divine abilities. Now, false teachers, their abilities don't age well, but they're not dumb. And just like Nebuchadnezzar can tell that this is probably not a favorable dream, they probably can tell that as well. So they don't even go to their books and come up with a, with a, with a favorable interpretation in order to expand the kingdom. They, they don't have any, any abilities, but, but they know how to stay alive. They're still here 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar's there. And then Daniel enters. Look, if you would, at verse 8. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians. So here's Daniel's position. He's still chief after 30 years. Since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now the king calls him by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, and, and he defines him after the name of my God. Some have said that this is an indication that Nebuchadnezzar must not have been converted because he says the name of my God, but there's plenty of explanations for that. I mean, this is could have been that at this point in the dream. It's before the judgment came. So he obviously didn't believe in God at, at, at that point. And it also could just mean that he's named after the gods of Babylon. So it's your name. But more important than the name that the king uses, he hadn't forgotten something about Daniel. He hadn't forgotten that the spirit of the holy God spoke through Daniel. As I said, Daniel is still a chief musician after 30 years, and, and you don't make it that long in a pagan court if it's not praiseworthy. And so the king tells Daniel the dream, and the dream is in verses 10 through 17, which we read, so we won't read all of that. But Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about a tree, one that started small and grew big in verse 10. That symbolized the power of, of his kingdom. One that was in the center of the land, and it touched the sky. It was visible by all in verse 11 at Symbolized the, his kingdom's importance and one that was beautiful and fruitful. That signifies the kingdom's blessing and, and one that was so large that the beasts and birds lodged in and around it. And that symbolized the kingdom's prosperity. But that's not all the king saw. 
That probably didn't trouble him. This is what troubled him. Look at verse 13. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. Oh, I'm a tree. I'm a big tree. This is wonderful. And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended. He looks up above the tree as he sees the tree touches the sky and he sees something coming out of the sky. And the word I looked is in, is in the emphatic, meaning it startled him. This person startled him and he uses the name, it's a messenger or a holy watcher. Some of your translations may say. Literally, the, the word is one who is awake and it's only used here in this chapter in the Bible. The idea is Nebuchadnezzar's life was being observed from heaven. And when it came up short, a messenger was sent to him. And maybe that's why God is sending you a message today. Do you think about the fact that your life is observed from heaven? There's, there's a holy watcher. That's not an angel. God knows you're... You're going out and you're coming in, even the thoughts and intents of your heart. And when that comes up short, the Lord is gracious by sending you a messenger. Like a man preaching from the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Look at what he says in verses 14 and 15. Look at the message from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, with a band of iron and bronze around it. The tree, its branches, the leaves and its fruit, the entire kingship, its entire kingship is coming down, but not totally destroyed. There's be a root or a band or a fence left around it to, to, protect the, to protect the stump. And then the analogy transitions from a tree to a man. Look at you at verse 15. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth, and let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. It's part of God's judgment, and not only is he going to have the kingdom removed from him, but he's going to live outdoors humbled with animals. He, he's going to be exposed to the elements, and the, his seat of reason will be altered, and, and that will last for seven times or seasons. Now, most scholars take the seven seasons to be seven years, but the word that's used there is indistinct. It's not like in Genesis 1 where it's, it's yom for day, so it's literal. I mean, you can't... I mean, you have to... To twist the Bible to make Genesis 1 say anything other than seven 24-hour days, because that's the Hebrew word used there. This word is, is, is not that specific. So is it seven months or seven years? We don't know. Leon Wood takes it as seven cycles of seasons would pass over before the king was restored. Whatever it was, it was long enough for God to humble this man and accomplish his work. And then the judgment's purpose is given in verse 17. Here's our theme verse. Look at verse 17. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the Holy One in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler of the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten what God declared to him 30 years ago in his first dream. So a second one comes. He remembered that he was the head of gold. But he forgot that it was God who gave him the kingdom. And he also forgot that when men do that, that same God who gave him the kingdom is the God who removes kings at his will. And so God reminds him in a very direct kind of, of way, this merciful dreams interpretation if you would, at verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar now asked Daniel to interpret the dream, and God gives Daniel the interpretation as he's hearing it. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My Lord... If only the dream applied to those who hate you, your enemies. And it's interpretation to your adversaries. 
So Daniel is listening, and as he's listening, his countenance is changing, and, and, and he is shaken by the interpretation that God gives him. It's so bad that the king even tries to console him. I mean, this is the king who once consoled. He's consoling Daniel. He was greatly perplexed. It means appalled or, or astounded. He, he was terrified. He was gripped by what he heard, by what was getting ready to come upon Nebuchadnezzar. And there's something very interesting whenever you think about that. And, and you look at how Daniel responds here. It's obvious that Daniel had respect for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is not just fear for his own life over giving a bad interpretation. It's not like Daniel's going, oh no, I know this is bad, so I'm going to have to tell him it's bad because he's already confronted him and given him, given him bad news before. Daniel genuinely cares for this man. You say, how do you know? Well, if you read in chapter 5, and we will when we get there after Easter, when Daniel interprets a similar dream to Belteshazzar, or to Belshazzar, I, say, I should say, the one that follows Nebuchadnezzar after his death, he doesn't express a whole lot of compassion there. <laughs> he has very little respect for him, and rightly so. He says, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end, period. And that's exactly what happened to Belshazzar. And I think Daniel is a good model for us here as we deal with lost people when you have to give them the bad news before you tell them the good news. His counsel was shared with compassion and candor. Stephen Miller said he, was, he has genuine compassion for the king and doesn't wish this on his enemies. Verse 19. But he doesn't hold back in speaking the truth, even though he has compassion. And he tells them what he must do. He tells them he must, must repent. In verse 27... And then he holds out God's mercy as he does. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity at the end of verse 27. You and I should have compassion on lost people. You were one, and they're headed for hell. And God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, and he desires all men to repent, and you should too. Don't fail to tell them the truth. And as you tell them their need to repent, hold out God's mercy to them, just like Daniel does here. If you would at verse 22. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Exactly what God promised is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had. And there's a play on words here. And if you were a Hebrew or reading in Hebrew, you might pick it up. Do you remember what the prophet Nathan said to David? He told him the story about Uriah, the little lamb. He said, David, thou art the man. And Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, thou art the tree. Nebuchadnezzar would be the man who acted like an animal and his kingdom would be cut down. But there was hope. Here's the mercy held out to him. Look at verse 26. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with its roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that heaven rules. Hear some echoes of Peter maybe there? Peter says, I'll die with you, Lord. And he says, Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. I prayed for you. What else does he say? And when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules the sovereignty of God, even in Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. If he repented, the stump would grow again, but only after it had been humbled greatly. And that involved acknowledging heaven's rule. What's the judgment? Nebuchadnezzar would go from the image of a tree that the beasts of the fields gather under to one of those beasts himself. And the tree would be cut down and the stump would be left, but the stump wasn't dug out. It wasn't burnt. It was left in place so that after the humbling, it might grow again. 
You thinking about any other biblical theology in the Bible? Other symbolism? Israel is like a tree that doesn't bear fruit, Jesus said. And so for a period of time, it's, it's dunged and by God's gracious mercy, and then the judgment is that God will cut the tree down, but God leaves a root, doesn't He? And Romans says that you and I as Gentiles are like wild olive branches grafted into to the tree, which is starting to grow again after the, the root of Jesse comes. And the warning that is given to us in Romans is all about pride. Don't be proud in the fact that you're in the tree and... You, Primarily Gentiles are entering the kingdom right now and, and the Jewish people have been blinded because if God would cut off the original branches to humble them, what do you think he'll do to the wild branches grafted in? That's what Romans says. Can you hear John 15? I'm the vine and you're the branches. What does he do to every branch in order for it to grow? He prunes the sprawling leaves in order that fruit may grow and every branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire, but he cuts the things away that we produce in order that we might produce fruit that remains his fruit. You should hear the words of Jesus, without me you can do nothing in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Is it possible? It's what God might be doing in your life right now. Pruning and burning and maybe cutting down so it's so a tree can grow so you can bear real fruit so you won't be cast into the fire in the end so Daniel caused the king to repentance with a longing heart look if you would at verse 27 he says therefore O king may my advice be pleasing to you break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your Prosperity. Here is one of the clearest explanations of repentance in the Old Testament. It even defines what it looks like. Renounce your sin, meaning break it off, and demonstrate repentance by doing right. He has to heed God's message by ceasing sin. It's coming through Daniel. And then he was to practice the opposite. Or as the New Testament says, put off and put on. Let him who stole steal no more, but work with his hands. You see the ceasing, putting off, and the putting on? Repenting of your sin is not simply stopping all action or an action. I mean, you can do that through AA or some other behavioral modification method. Repentance is a change of heart and mind where you see your sin and yourself differently in light of God, and then you turn from your wicked deeds or desires, and then you start doing what is pleasing to the Lord. It's repentance. Notice what Daniel says proves his repentance. Look at verse 27 again. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. I mean, he's not saying that, that your repentance will be granted or your sins will be forgiven because you do these good deeds. He's saying these deeds and changes will be evidence but you have repented. Repentance has fruit that's observable. And I've said to you before, you, you've heard some people say, you can't see my heart. And that's true, but I can see the fruit that comes from it, and I can see the attitudes that leak out of it. Did you know that there are repentant attitudes, the, the desires of a repentant heart, Godly sorrow works repentance. This is the passage. It's listed in 2 Corinthians 7. And Paul says there that the attitudes of a repentant heart, a repentant person's heart is clearly observable. Look at what it says. For behold, notice what earnestness this very thing, what godly sorrow, this godly sorrow has produced in you. So he's beholding something in you. And then he gives what he sees. Vindication of yourself, indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of, of wrong. Those are all attitudes. Those aren't actions. Those are things that are resident in a person's heart. A person's heart. And look at how it ends. In everything you demonstrated yourself innocent in those matters. 
or in the matter. It's a demonstration. God says you should be able to see someone overtaken by godly sorrow. What would that look like? Tears uh, running down the aisle, bowing at an altar, uh, selling all that they have to, to the poor? Uh, no. Maybe some of those things. It's working this change of repentance in their hearts and lives. And you can see the attitudes there. And you can surely see it in King Nebuchadnezzar. This fourth scene. The resisted dream's fulfillment. Look at you at verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built, have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? So twelve months later, all the events foretold took place. Nebuchadnezzar was out for a walk, and as one preacher said, he thought he was talking to himself, but God was listening. <laughs> and while the word was, word was still in his mouth, God moved. The king's out on his roof of his magnificent palace, and he overlooks. It would have been on, a, on, a, on an elevated place. The king's palace was the highest. Overlooked a great city that he's built, and he's impressed. Not with God, but himself. Notice all the personal pronouns. Is this not Babylon that I myself has built? My power, my majesty, I strengthen and establish the name of my reign forever. Nebuchadnezzar believed that he had accomplished what his forefathers attempted to do in Genesis 11. He had built a city. He made a name for himself. And he was autonomous from God. And from a human standpoint, he had no reason, he had every reason to be, to be taken back by the city's beauty. I mean, you've heard this before, but Babylon had the, the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It rivaled the, the pyramids in, in, in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar built those gardens for his wife, who was from a mountain town, and she wanted vegetation, and he wanted to impress her, so... It was full of plants and trees, had, a, had a, an engineering marvel, an irrigation system that, that brought water up from the, from the Euphrates River. Babylon was probably the largest city on earth at the time. The Louvre in, in Paris has the Babylonian exhibit that has some of the, the carved reliefs from, from Nebuchadnezzar's literal palace, which are stunning. The city had eight gates, which had the famous Ishtar Gate and that gate was decorated with 557 blue-glazed animals. That original gate, by the way, was taken to Berlin. The main processional into the city was a two-thirds mile long walk decorated with 120 more blue enameled lions and 575 dragons carved to scale. It had 53, the city had 53 temples in it, three palaces... The main one, you ready for this? This is Nebuchadnezzar's main palace, was 350 yards wide and 200 yards deep. Nebuchadnezzar lived in a 630,000 square foot home, and that is the, the, the palace that he walks out on the porch on and overlooks all of the city, the great double walls, 25 foot thick, 40 feet between with a moat, 10 miles around with 260 towers. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. But did you see something even more breathtaking than Babylon in verse 28? Look at verse 28 again. See if you can pick it up. Something more breathtaking than what he saw from the royal palace. And all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king twelve months later he was walking on the roof of the royal palace. Do you want some more breathtaking than Babylon? It's God's mercy that is on full display there. God allowed a full year to pass after Nebuchadnezzar had the dream and the interpretation before he judged him. He gave him a full 12 months to repent. Isn't that amazing? How merciful is God? He's so merciful that your repentance doesn't even have to be perfect. It just needs to be genuine. In your sin, if you do repent, God may chasten you, but you'll find mercy even in judgment. 
How long has God allowed you to repent? How long, has, how long of a period of time has He given? If you don't, rest assured, your 12 months, whatever it is, will be up at some point. Think about what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking. He had a dream, troubled him really bad, and tries to have the world save his conscience with the wise men, and then he calls in, in, in Daniel, and Daniel tells him the truth, and he's, he's probably initially struck with fear, and he didn't repent immediately. So a little time went by, and some fear drained away, and he's less goaded to repent or turn. So a month went by, and then two, and then three, and then six, and... And he stopped thinking about the judgment altogether. Or as my friend Joel said, he, he likely came to the point where he thought, you know, that Daniel's a pretty good guy, but nobody's right 100% of the time. And so he dismissed God's merciful invitation to repent. Jesus warns about the same thing in the New Testament, doesn't he? You hear a sermon like, like this one, and Satan comes and steals the Word of God that's been sown in your heart, steals the gospel. How does he do that? Does he come in and like blow in your ear and it just goes out the other side? How does Satan steal the word of God from your heart? He's just exactly the same way as it happened with Nebuchadnezzar. You don't respond immediately and time passes and you don't think much about the message anymore that convicted you of that sin and without that conviction you continue on while finally you just forget. It passes on. All the while, God's judgment sword still dangling over your neck. Today may be your final day. It was for the king. Look at verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. One morning he got up like any other morning and he put on his Babylonian... Pants, and in a puff of pride, God acted. And with the vibration of his proud words still reverberating on his vocal cords, another voice is heard. And God says in a nutshell, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And then judgment falls. Immediately he becomes like an animal... He goes out of his mind and he stays that way for seven seasons. Now, he continues that way until God restores him. We don't have time this morning to go into the, the scientific condition that Nebuchadnezzar had, but, but did you know there are many cases of it in history? It's called zoanthropy or boanthropy. Zo, where we get our term zoo, uh, animal. And then you probably hear anthropology. For man, it's when a person thinks that they're an animal and the, the king has a divine case of it. Now, can you imagine? He goes out, he boasts, and this is, again, he gets up like any other morning. His kingdom is functioning. Can you imagine what it was like inside the Babylonian court when, when this happened? I mean, the most powerful man in government doesn't have a sound mind he can't govern and would rather happily spend his days outside counting grass blades. Well, come to think of it, we actually can know what that feels like, can't we? Now, let me be serious for a second. When you see bizarre leadership over you, like a man dressed up as a woman as the assistant health secretary... There's something vital to remember. It's not always the moral condition of the ruler that brings God's judgment. It's more often the moral condition of the people to be ruled over that does. God gives leaders more about the moral condition of the people they rule than their own righteousness. Gleason Archer said, It is not by a man's ability, but by God's permissive will that he reigns. However, the one criterion that affects God's choice of kings 
is the moral condition of the people to be ruled over. Do you remember in verse 17, the theme verse? He gives it to whoever he wishes. Do you remember the kind of king that he gives? To the lowly, the humble. We normally think it's the opposite, don't we? We normally think it's the righteousness of the king, of why God exalts that, that purpose, a person. We think that rulers get to rule because they're righteous men, and that's surely what God desires. In fact, the Bible says it's a blessing whenever a righteous man rules. But did you know the greater emphasis in Scripture for who God places on the throne is more about the condition of the people? That often determines who God places over them? Why is, was Nebuchadnezzar ruling over the Israelites in Babylon to begin with? Was it his righteousness or their unrighteousness? Maybe here's a more familiar one. What did God tell Samuel when he was mourning over the people choosing Saul? Remember 1 Samuel? The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. What's God saying there? That he doesn't use human leaders? That he rules his people somehow mystically from heaven? That's not the case because Samuel has been, has been a judge over them and Joshua prior to him and Moses before him. And God surely uses human leaders. God's given this principle here. God is saying the leader that I will place over the people is being determined by how they honor me or whether they don't. Wicked people and proud people get wicked and proud rulers. It's a judgment. So when you look at our nation's leaders, it is God's desire that they serve Him, but God's determination of who they are is more based on whether the people will serve Him. And when that kind of judgment comes, you should also remember something else in the Bible. That judgment comes first, starts first in the house of the Lord. And that's what you're seeing now, or you're going to begin to see the church will be pure, purged and purified. Don't mistake and think that this is somehow some great falling away. This is not a great falling away. This is a great sifting of wheat from chaff. And what you should do in the midst of that is rejoice and then search yourself to see if you be in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. And then rejoice in the sovereign Christ who builds His church and preserves His people, who will be glorified just like Nebuchadnezzar proclaims. Here's the humble king's praise, the humbled king's praise. Here's his restoration. If you would at verse 34. By the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. The story returns to the first person now. He lifts his eyes toward heaven, an act of humility and submission it's an act of acknowledging his need of God. Look at verse, the rest of verse 34. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Did he learn his lesson? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? I want you to notice that Nebuchadnezzar praises God for a current sovereignty, not a future one. Notice it says, The Most High rules the kingdoms of men. Rules like right now. Del Ralph Davis said, It's a present sovereignty. He rules now. It's a concrete sovereignty, the kingdom of men. It's, 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 it's not a, an up there kind of thing, but a down here kind of thing. It's a practical sovereignty. He gives it to whomever, and then it's a free sovereignty to whom he wishes. He not only directs the general destiny of nations, but appoints specific rulers to, to their place over them. And he does so freely by giving such a place to whomever he wishes. And it's a fascinating sovereignty. He gives it to the lowliest of men. And it's an exclusive sovereignty. 
This is Israel God, Israel's God who alone is God over all kings and does all of this. Ralph Davis said, Human governments are, an interim, are interim arrangements that God appoints to fill the space until the power and glory of Jesus' kingdom comes. And the king now knows who has the power and the wisdom And it's not wise to challenge the omnipotent God of heaven. And the Lord responds in mercy. Look at you at verse 36. At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began to seek me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. There's mercy again. And when the king repented, God restored his kingdom to him. And then he gives the moral of the story in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. The moral is God hates pride. He exalts the humble and he resists the proud. And I want to remind you that this whole testimony is public humility. And genuine humility doesn't care who knows what. It only cares that God's name is set right and that you're right with Him. Did you know that you don't need the hanging gardens of Babylon to blaspheme in your heart and to think about what my hand has done? You don't need great buildings or accomplishments to be lifted up in pride. Even the very breath that you and I take comes from His hand. So we don't even have a right to claim glory from our obedience. We're just faithful slaves doing what we've been commanded to do. But did you notice the order of things? Nebuchadnezzar is out in the middle of the field, chewing his cud, as one said. And he turns his eyes. He's had enough. He's like the prodigal. He finds himself where he never thought that he would be. And he turns his eyes. He lifts his eyes toward heaven and acknowledges, You're God. And I need you. And then the Lord restores his mind. He humbled himself, acknowledged his need, and God gave him understanding. And that's exactly what you need to do if you're outside of Christ. You need to bow your knee, lift your eyes toward heaven, and then the Lord will help you see.